Hello, you're listening to Craig Walker's Future Off podcast, where we bring together conversations with thought leaders from across the world to unpack what's next in the design of products, services, and experiences. I'm Jeremy Walker, director and co-founder of Craig Walker, a design and research agency with a mission to design the greatest positive impact for the greatest number of people. For this series, Peter Farrago, a lead designer at Craig Walker, explores the future of care with leaders from around the world. In this episode, she has a conversation with Dr. Stephen Allender, a professor of public health and founding director of the Global Center for Preventative Health and Nutrition at Deakin University, a World Health Organization collaborating center. Steve's ongoing program of work addresses the burden of disease through community-based approaches to obesity prevention. He does this by working in communities using a complex systems approach to develop a shared understanding of the local causes of unhealthy weight in children. Once the key drivers of these problems have been identified, stakeholders prioritize and co-design locally relevant actions that the community can implement, making it a healthier place for their kids to live. Steve has recently been acknowledged as among the nation's leading and most published researchers in obesity prevention by Research Australia. Prior to Deakin University, Steve was a research fellow at Oxford University for over a decade, mainly as an epidemiologist working in coronary heart disease. Today, we hear him talk about how he demystifies the hard science of epidemiology so that communities have the capacity to understand and solve the complex problems themselves. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you here. Talk us through how this program works. Step us through how you work with communities. Yeah, so the fundamental difference between this and traditional approaches is we're not trying to randomise out the stuff that makes it hard for things to work. So our starting point is to say, can we understand the complexity of the problem? And then can we use that as the basis of the design of a response? So if we work with a group of people, we'll begin with the leaders in that particular setting, and that might be business leaders, health sector leaders, teacher leaders, leading children in schools, for example, kids that are respected and, and understand that environment. And we then go through a process to capture from them how the problem looks from their point of view. So not how it looks in another city, not how it looks in another state, not how it looks in the literature, but for that particular community and that particular context, why is this problem happening? What keeps it happening and what might stop it? That's the basis then to think about what we know about solving the problem and optimise the things that those people in that community can do to solve the problem. So instead of buying in a solution from somewhere else, the question is, how does the problem look? What's possible? What are we prepared to do? What can we do? And how do we evolve that in real time? So as we learn whether or not things work, we're adapting them to optimise their impact. We learn some things don't work, we move on to other things. New people come, we're able to adapt and engage them. So that's the way that we work. And then the software that we invented underpins all of that work and supports communities to do that work. Mm. Can you talk to us through about a couple of interventions that you have found interesting? The one that comes to mind for me from this work that you've done is around the, the water in a particular community. Can you talk to us about that and any other ones that come to mind? Yeah, that, that's actually a great example and, and something really interesting has just happened with that. So working in communities in southwest Victoria, 
And historically, the water is from the water table. So it's, it's from what we call bore water. And so it has a high mineral content. So it's safe and it's perfectly safe to drink, but it has quite a mineral taste. It tastes quite dirty. And so when we work with the communities, we were saying, what is it that drives kids drinking sugar-sweetened beverages? Why is it that kids in this community drink more sugar-sweetened beverages than other communities? And a whole bunch of reasons, advertising, marketing. But the taste of water was a critical factor. And they explained it to us like this. They said, well, you know, if you came and ran an intervention or you came to the school and you handed out pamphlets and water bottles and you said, what we need you to do is drink more water because we're worried about your health... And the parents are going home and they've got this message and they stop at the supermarket. They can't take water out of the tap because it doesn't taste good and the kids won't drink it. So they have to buy something from the supermarket to put on the table to drink at night. And in the supermarket, a litre of water is about $2.50 and a litre of of, um, cola is about 75 cents. So if your question is, how do we do something about kids drinking sugar-sweetened beverages and you don't understand the complexity of the water doesn't taste good so we're not going to drink it out of the tap and there's no economic incentive to choose water in the supermarket, then it doesn't matter what you say to the families, they're not going to make that choice and, and there's no reason why they would. So we work with the water company, we work with the community and we put all of those things together and in the short term... The water company uh, provided um, clean water or or tasteless water that was available in the schools in particular. But one of the things we've been doing with them over the last five years is working on the business case for why you would change the taste of water to improve the health of kids. Not something that water companies usually worry about or usually do. And what's happened recently is the state government has announced a $26 million investment to improve the taste of water for that community on the basis of improving the health of kids. So from the investment of about $50,000 worth of time and working together to understand the problem, you've got a $26 million investment that changes, fundamentally changes what happens in every tap, in every household for about 600,000 people. Wow. That's so incredible. On the one hand, it seems so obvious. And then on the other, it's just so incredibly complex, I imagine, to engage all the people that need to be engaged to, to action any change around around something like that. Yeah, and I think one of the big challenges is identifying the right people to be in the room and providing a reason for them to be there. So, so actually kids' health is relatively easy because most people were kids, you'd like to hope, their parents, their grandparents, their aunties and uncles. And if you ask a community, would we like our kids to be healthier it's pretty rare that the answer is no. The other thing that we're doing in, in using the software to help people share how they see a problem, it's the first time all the stuff going on in their head is out in the open and it's the first time they've been able to share it in a way that they can see how other people see the problem as well. So you're getting a new language for how you can understand the problem and all of a sudden all the history of competition and all that goes away because we can see new ways of solving the problem. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit more about Sticky? Yeah, so we use an approach called system science um, and particularly from system dynamics and what that term means, system is basically trying to understand all the interconnected parts, all the pieces of the puzzle and dynamics is about how those parts are changing over time. So dynamic is the change over time and it was typically that 
if you wanted somebody to help you use system dynamics, you needed a consultant. They were expensive. They came for a day. You got a glossy brochure and then you wondered what it was all about. Mm. What we learnt from the trials that we did is that we have to build the capacity of people in communities to do the work for themselves. If you're going to get a sustainable change in a problem that takes 20 years to install, you need the intervention to last for more than a couple of days, a couple of months, a couple of years. So you have to build the capacity of the community to respond. So what Sticky does, it's a piece of software that takes people through the process of capturing that complexity, understanding where the interventions could be, understanding what the actions might be, understanding who would take what sort of role and then track that and evolve it in real time. So it's a piece of software that's really deliberately easy to use, takes about five minutes to learn how to use it, that looks really cool and is really fun to use so that people can do this work themselves. We train people in the process you use to use Sticky because there's, there's still a bit you need to know, but again, we try and demystify the, the science and make it more about the practical, which, which works really well. And as I mentioned, what we're trying to do is build capacity of people to solve complex problems, child obesity being one of them. But what we've seen is the communities that we've trained to do this work are now using the package for all sorts of things we don't even know about, which mm. I think is a great testament to capacity building. So they're using it for COVID recovery, bushfire recovery, suicide prevention, methamphetamine use, intimate partner violence, energy grid modelling, a whole range of different topics, climate change resilience, where they themselves have said, we've got a problem we've had real trouble solving in the past. There's lots of us that want to solve it. We can't work out how we fit together. Let's use Sticky and the system science underneath it to see if we can find a path forward. That's so cool. So I imagine the more they use it, the better that people get at using it. So people in communities using it for other problems, will that help the childhood obesity prevention work? Yeah, what the, the curious thing is we, we assume a problem has a cause and most of these problems have the same causes. And so part of what's going on is you actually start to see the whole system instead of a single part. So we employ agencies and people to focus on one small part of one small problem and expect them to ignore everything else mm. and compete with all the other parts of the community for limited funds to solve a problem. What we're saying here is can we find key drivers we all agree need to be addressed that we're all interested in changing? And so, again, if you think about kids, kids being happy and active is something we're all interested in changing. Mm. What's my role in making sure kids are happy and active? It's different to the school teachers. It's different to the person who owns the supermarket. But we all want to see it happen and we can all see a way we might support that if we can see the whole system have you got any examples of where two quite different problems have been tried to be solved through this system science approach and you've seen the same kind of causal factor? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the one I would think of, we, we did a piece of work on GP prescribing. Mm -hmm. So we worked with 23 GPs and the question we asked them was, why is it you don't talk about physical activity when you're prescribing treatments to your patients? which sounds a bit odd, but essentially if a GP talks to you about physical activity, even for a minute, 
you'll be more active 12 months later and it will benefit your health. So there's no question about whether or not it's a good thing to do. And so we asked the, the GPs, why is this the way it is? And we built a model using Sticky and we built an intervention and we trialled it using a bunch of artificial intelligence support. And over 130,000 GP visits, we were able to increase the prescription of physical activity. But one of the key things that the GP said was self-efficacy in understanding what the right thing to tell people to do was a major barrier. So GPs, when you ask them, don't actually know what the right thing to say is. So one of the interventions was to help them understand how to be a role model and how to explain how, what to do to a patient. When you do work in communities, you get exactly the same thing. It's actually self-efficacy about how to teach kids what healthy food is, self-efficacy about preparing healthy food, self-efficacy about how to access opportunities to be physically active. So I think a lot of the problems we have is we just don't understand what we can and can't do and what strengths we've already got that we can build on. Mm. Thinking about your work, what's getting you really excited at the moment? Well, we've just got so a lot. Of, a lot of what I've just described sounds probably quite qualitative and quite community development, without uh, much sort of what epidemiologists would call hard science behind it. But we're running NHMRC-funded trials where we've got um, cluster randomised trials, so that we can understand whether or not what we're doing is having an effect above and beyond doing nothing. What's pretty exciting is we've got the results of a second one of these trials that has worked to prevent childhood obesity. So the first trial we did, we were in the room doing the system science work and helping the communities work their way through the process. This trial, we taught the communities how to do the system science and we weren't in the room. So the first one, we were just, can you do this at all? And if you do it, does it have any effect? And the answer to that was yes. And we got about a 4% reduction in overweight and obesity prevalence and improvements in psychosocial well-being and physical well-being of kids. Great. Could have been a fluke. Could just be because we're in the room. Who knows? This one, we taught the community members to do the process and we got out of the way. So we weren't there. And during that time, there was covid so not only were we not there, but they've got this whole other thing to deal with, mm. plus all the people we would normally work with are getting sucked into things like contact tracing and, and those sorts of things. And we're getting the results back from that. And despite COVID, we're getting the same results that we got from the first trial. And despite us not being in the room, we're getting the same results as the first trial and a slightly better effect size. So a 6% reduction in overweight and obesity prevalence in kids. That's kids are a healthy weight. And what's really more important, I think, for everybody is the psychosocial well-being of those kids. Their mental health is better if they're in one of our communities than if they're not. Physical well-being is the same. And then we see changes in behaviours like takeaway consumption, soft drink consumption, water consumption that start explaining some of those differences. So that's super exciting because for a long time we've thought this is a problem that can't be solved the world does thinks it's a problem that can't be solved it can it's just a question of how you engage the community in the response so, so that's pretty exciting and then because that is um, such a unique finding the rest of the world's super interested so a large part of what we're doing with the who is helping other parts of the world start to use this process as well yeah, and I guess what's so exciting about that second trial is the fact that you're not in the room means the capacity to scale without it having to be reliant on yourself and your team is just so much bigger. 
Yeah, that's the theory. We're still really heavily in the room training them how to do it. This is this is one of the challenges. And one of the things that this trial has taught us is that the sorts of communities we're working in, so the leaders we work with, there's huge turnover. So again, traditionally what you'd do is you'd start an intervention day one and then you'd let it run for three years and then you'd work out whether or not it had worked. So in the work we're doing, we do a two-day training of these key people in the community and then we find out three months later they've all moved on, got new jobs, gone on maternity leave, whatever, or had to deal with COVID. So while we're not in the room while the work is done to design and run the interventions and the changes in communities, we're heavily in the room supporting them to be ready to do it. So that's our next challenge is to go to scale, providing the training so that people can get upskilled at any point in time mm. and be ready to do this regardless of whether we're there or not. So you can see we're kind of constantly taking a step backwards and we're ready to do that and we know how to do that. We've just worked with another 16 local authorities across Victoria to do that. So that's our next challenge is how we do that. Mm. I imagine there's something really interesting in that idea of how you put a lot of that online, for example, versus knowledge transfer and how different people learn and, and especially in specific communities, how that, how that could work. So the science we have been doing started off with, does this systems approach work to solve the problem? The next question we asked was, can we teach other people to use this approach to solve the problem without us being there? The next question is, how do we make this interesting and fun to use all the time? And so those who are prepared to do the work and get it, use it all the time anyway, how do we make it possible that I start on Monday and the rest of the team's been doing this for two years, how do I get up to speed without feeling silly and how, you know, how do I learn in real time without having to do a two-day intensive course? So the research questions are how do you get people up to speed quickly in a way that's effective and, and interesting and useful? Yeah. Do you describe it as kind of strength-based community ownership? Is that the, the approach? Yeah, it, it is. It's, you have to understand the complexity first. So you have to understand all the moving parts of the problem. And then the question is, what have we got that we can use to throw at this? What are we already doing that we should strengthen? Where are the gaps where we need new things? So yes, definitely it's building on the existing strengths. And, and a lot of the mistakes of the past have been to turn up with an intervention and say, well, for example, childhood obesity rates are going up. So whatever you've done in the past must be a failure. We're going to start from zero and do something else, which is pretty insulting to someone who's spent a career working there and also not great for networks and support moving forward. Mm. Rather, what have we already got that is useful and working? How do we strengthen that? Where else could we work? What's different, though, is instead of having one person in one agency responsible for the delivery of a change, that one person is responsible for bringing the whole community around a solution. And so the water example I gave you before is one change out of about 480 that that community made. Mm. Now, if I'm sitting in government, I'm trying to solve this problem. Traditionally, I'm not saying now, but traditionally, I'd look overseas, see if I could find something that worked, buy it deliver it and hope it worked. And what, what this is, is saying, what are all the different changes we need to make? How do we as a community make them? And how do we make them work as well as we possibly can? Mm. I'm really interested in the co-creation side of, of the work that you do. How does this co-creation approach 
differ from past approaches to public health issues? Yeah, so the, the departure and the thing that's quite hard to sell is that the solution's not predefined. So we're not going in and saying there is a single solution and it is this and we will deliver it with really high fidelity. We'll make sure we get the dose exactly right at the right time of day for the right period of time. So that's one major difference. The second is we're not predefining the problem, although we are. But actually, when we say the problem is childhood obesity, the first thing you do when you map the system is you're actually understanding all the drivers of that problem. So the problem is not really childhood obesity. It's access to healthy food. It's the cost of healthy food. It's marketing. It's um, social connectedness in communities, a whole range of issues that just so happen to have an impact on the behaviours a kid has. So we move straight away out from this individual child is making a bad decision to how do we make this an environment where it's a healthy place to be across all of the different drivers of health. So they're two major departures. Um, and it's actually pretty challenging for traditional public health because the medical model is find the vector or find the lesion, find a treatment, randomise everything else out of the way, see whether or not the treatment works. If it does, great. Scale it, give everyone the treatment. If it doesn't, move on to the next treatment. This approach is saying, can we agree how this problem looks from all angles? Can we agree what all the possible solutions might be? Who's going to do what? So there's no hero wearing glasses and a white coat coming in and saying, here's the solution. The people in the room like us are saying, can we help you find ways to solve this problem? Mm. So in order to reach more people and have greater impact, how can your program and, and programs of this nature be scaled when so much of this work at its core is around context, specificity and local ownership? Yeah, and I think the view from the cheap seats is that digital technology solves all, right? So, well, we just need to put this in the hands of everybody and and we'll be fine. And I think in part that's true. I think we can put these techniques and technologies in the palm of your hand, but we can't yet replicate the training you need to be able to use it properly. So you still need to understand what you're doing Mm -hmm. to use packages like Sticky and otherwise you just end up with a mess and looking at each other going, well, that wasn't much of a solution, was it? We're just in the same mess we were when we started. But we are working on that. So we are building bite-sized materials that allow you to work through these stages on your own or as a small group or as a community or as a a group of leaders so that you can use the process with as much um, accuracy to the the science that's sitting under it. And there's 250 years of science under this. But if you're sitting in a community, you're not interested in 250 years of science. You want to get on with solving the problem. So we're trying to translate all of that knowledge into a three-minute bite that says, if you're trying to start, perhaps think of the problem this way. What does that tell you? Sticky captures it for you and you're on your way. So I I think one of the ways is the digital technology that allows you to reach scale. The second way, though, which we, we haven't explored enough, is the ability to adapt in real time. And so we're using quite a bit of artificial intelligence now to capture what we've learnt from the last 20 years, but also to understand how people interact with this technology and adapt in real time to make it more useful. So we've got 20 years' worth of trial data in communities, about 7.5 million data points on about a quarter of a million kids. The answer's in there somewhere. We're just not smart enough to see it. If I'm in one of our studies is in Denmark, we've got others around the world, 
I wish I had access to whatever those 250,000 kids had to tell me about what works to improve their health. Mm. And at the minute, the quality of the response is as good as who you know. There is no access to the world's knowledge. So one of the things we're doing with the AI is building an augmented decision-making platform where we can say, the kids I'm working with look a bit like this, the community I'm working with looks a bit like this, the leadership looks like this, the resources available look like this. From the whole history of all the efforts we've made in the past to solve this problem, what does it tell us about the right place to start? So that's a big part of, of where we're looking in, in the future. And I see that as augmented decision-making. So there's a human in the loop, right? So the human's still got to make a decision, but they've got the benefit of all of the knowledge that we've put together over the last 40 years, really, in doing that. So that, that's a pretty key part of that. And the other major gap we've got, or the, or the next step in the future, is a universal standard of practice so that when I'm trying to solve this problem, I know I'm using the best possible process to solve it. And at the minute, that's all over the place. But there's people all over the world who are learning things in real time about how to solve these problems. And it takes three to seven years to get from them learning that for it to get in the public domain and typically 15 to 17 years for it to translate into policy. So what policymakers will use as a process for change is based on evidence that's out of date. So one of the things we've got to do in the future is speed that up and create global platforms that mean we can learn in real time. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's almost like using machine learning is also, is almost going to make the data that you have more accessible. Yeah, that's the hope. So that there's a lot of challenges with that, but you know, relative to what we can do with the, I mean there's vast amounts of data. The problem is not whether or not we've got enough data. The problem is we just can't understand it all in context. And so, you know, even the two trials that we've done, both of them have worked. Um, there's, there's involved probably about 10,000 kids, something in that neighbourhood, but we're just taking a sample of 10,000 kids living in communities of six and 700,000. How do we understand how that community's responded? All we could track is 500 actions. There's probably two and a half, three thousand actions and, you know, 10,000 people involved in the response. So how is it we catch what's going on and attribute which changes are leading to which improvements in kids' health because we probably don't need to do a thousand things. Where we are at the minute is more action is better than less and that's true to an extent. Yeah, so to put this into practice, if you mentioned someone in Denmark, what can someone in Denmark who's rolling out this program learn from a rural community in Victoria, for example? Yeah, so, so I was literally in Denmark two weeks ago having exactly this conversation um, and at the minute it's people like me having to go back and forth so one of the things is just connecting like people in these communities but they're the same questions how do we engage the leadership in solving this problem how do we make sure we're catching the right things how do we know what the evidence tells us that's worked before um, how do we ensure that we're doing the right thing by our kids how do we get the best reach they're the same questions it doesn't matter whether you're in New York uh, Aarhus, where I was, Western Victoria, Campbelltown, they're the same questions. How do we engage the people who can make change in this process so that we're optimising the way that we're working to solve the problem? How do you think that moving forward that you can strike the right balance between in-person 
community-specific interventions versus guidance and decision-making through machine learning? Yeah, I, I don't think there is a right balance because I think it's a, it, it's a dynamic system in itself. In other words, it's changing all the time. So getting the right response is more creating a learning system that continues to adapt. So instead of fire and forget interventions of, you know, one package of something, we've got a process that allows everybody to work out where and when to engage and is learning in real time. So I tried to engage in this in week one. It didn't make sense to me, so I left. Doesn't mean there's not a place for you in week five. And at the minute, the person who leaves in week one is probably gone. So how is it we make, uh, we create a learning organism that optimises the input at the right time, not just for the scientists. I mean, we're a tiny part of this, but for, you know, the leaders in retail, it's a different point where they can contribute, leaders in education, leaders in health, politicians, policymakers. We all have a role. At the minute, we don't have any scientific smart way of optimising right thing at the right time. And that's that's what it looks like. That's that's the next piece of science is how do you make that organism work? I'm glad it's you solving that. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. I can describe the problem. <laughs> I can't solve it. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a kind of really exciting challenge, kind of working out how to use the data in the most meaningful way because there is so much of it. COVID was such a shake-up for everyone, obviously, around the world. And you spoke about the trial in, in Victoria doing really well during COVID. So I'm just wondering, are there any kind of post-COVID responses that you're seeing as potentially transient and, and any that you're seeing that kind of have long-lasting effects on the work that you're doing and how you work? Yeah, I think the, the classic in that space is really the shift to digital and remote communication. So pre-COVID, my team, so we use a technique called group model building, which is from the system dynamics world that I was, I've been talking about. And it really teaches people how to work in a group, usually in a room together to build that picture of a complex problem to then be able to start thinking about unique ways to solve it. And my team and most people would always have said, the only way you can do this is in person because it's a tactile, personal conversations around a table way of working. And we're always really concerned because that's not scalable, right? You can't do that at any sort of scale um, and you can't digitise it. And then COVID happened and we had a choice of either having what turned out to be about three years of not doing anything or we had to solve the problem of you know, how would you do this digitally? How much worse is it? And so we're already playing with the idea of can you do this digitally and what uh, what difference do you get? Is it not as good a product? Is it not as effective? And we were starting to do that and then COVID happened and we had no choice and the rest of the world had no choice. And so that's really helped us move to providing training in an online manner, which is a step towards, I think, static digital resources that mean you can operate at national and global scale. Um, there's still a bunch of questions in there about how you do that effectively, but it has forced, I think, all of us to think about that. Mm. It's exciting to think that you can do more of this work via video conferencing, for example, not just kind of, and, and I think COVID really helped everybody see that, that 
we don't need to be in person all the time and that we can have meaningful conversations with communities, especially through our computers, phones, whatever it is. Are there any human behaviours that you predict or you're seeing that are likely to impact rates of obesity? That's a really interesting question. In terms of behaviours, so we don't think about it in terms of an individual's behaviour. We think about it in terms of the environments in which those behaviours are made and how they're constrained or otherwise to support that behaviour. So say that a different way, if, if I'm driving home from work and I would go past 20 opportunities in a 30-minute drive to buy my daily calorie allowance for five bucks and I wouldn't have to get out of the car and that's what we would consider normal and that's why we have a societal rate of obesity at 70%. It's normal to be an unhealthy weight because it's normal to do unhealthy things. So rather than thinking about behavioural trends that are driving this problem, I'm more interested in environmental trends that are driving or otherwise not driving this um, problem. And so a lot of the research we're doing is around solving that problem. For example, building the algorithms that explain how um, land use planning by local government drives obesity rates. So when you see a new development, the first three buildings that get built are a McDonald's, a 7-Eleven um, and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then you put houses around it. And that's not an accident. So that would be a classic easy starting point to do something about obesity rates is just simply change our planning laws so that you have to have access to a supermarket within walking distance before you have access to a fast food restaurant within walking distance. Just that would make the world of difference. Yeah, so instead of what human behaviours are likely to impact rates, really it should be what environmental factors, really. What human behaviours in decision-making would be the question I'd ask. Who's making decisions about what our environments look like and what would it take for them to decide our health is more important than whatever is driving those decisions otherwise? And, and we've done a bunch of work on the intersection between over and under nutrition and climate change. Same conversation, you know, the drivers are the same. Overconsumption is a function of people who make decisions deciding overconsumption is more important than health because there's profit in it. Scary times, Steve. <laughs> this is nothing new. <laughs> nothing new. It's been going on for a while. But when you start to unpack it, it's just so depressing and overwhelming. Yeah. Unless you work with communities and they solve the problem for themselves. So so where we've worked and, it, and they've won, it's huge. And I'll go into those communities and say, you know what, you've done this amazing job, your kids are healthier. And they'll say, yeah, but we could do better. So the people who care about this stuff want to keep solving the problem. That's not the issue. It's we've got to give them the support and capacity to keep the work going. That's that's the challenge. And make healthy normal, which sounds obvious, but it's not what we have. Steve, based on your experience and program of work, what are you starting to see as the future of care in your world? There's a future that's about uh, co-creation is a useful term to use. I, I think it empowering people to be part of solutions. So that is not patient-centred care. That's not what I mean. I mean, we've got a problem to solve. Where do we all fit in solving it? And what's your role in solving it? And that means that the person who we would traditionally pose as 
suffering from a problem is helping direct the response, not just be on the receiving end of the response. So a piece of work we were doing in acute mental care, for example, is working with people who are in acute mental care saying, how do we make this service better? How do we make this work for you? Now, nobody ever asks people in acute mental care, is the service any good and what can we do to fix it? And it's got traditionally hideous rates of patient satisfaction. But people assume that you know, it can't be fixed, but nobody's ever really sat down and said, can you describe this system from your point of view? Why is this happening? And, you know, in my part of the world, a large part of that is people will get admitted to an acute mental care facility because they've had a critical event. They'll then get discharged and they'll go back home, which is a three-hour drive away. Mm. It's really obvious what the problem is, is their access to that care is significantly reduced and nobody's thought, how do we give them access to support that overcomes the fact that they're three hours away? Because nobody's asked them. So empowering people to be part of the solution instead of categorising them as the problem to be solved, I think is a major trend. That's an easy thing to say and it's quite buzzwordy and all that sort of thing. What are the technologies you do to supercharge that? I mean, that was going to be my next question. Like, what are the products, services or experiences yeah. that will supercharge this or empower that person? Yeah. So I think, I think at its most gentle, it's giving people the ability to contribute to the design. So things like Sticky allow people to explain how the problem sees to, looks to them how they would fit into a solution. So that's at its most gentle. If we're serious, it's going many levels deeper than that and accessing all of these data that we've got and using it to say, if we're going to solve this problem, where are the points of intersection that we can solve it? So we did a piece of work where we took all of the Google search records from the US over 20 years and you can predict the outcome of a health intervention based on how people search the internet. Why aren't we using that to direct healthcare? Because mm. there's data privacy issues and all of that. But you get you get the internet provider to give you an anonymous stream of data. You can actually tell exactly what the problems are in a community before the community knows. I remember reading somewhere that you know Google having access to their search fun functionality can basically you can read someone's mind by looking yeah, at what they searched exactly. throughout a day. Yeah. So, so we could predict um, heart disease rates, cancer rates, diabetes rates, um, physical inactivity, all of it from what people search on the web. And that sounds ridiculous, right? And I was writing this paper up and I was going, I don't think I buy this really. And I, I was in Singapore at a conference and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go for a run and then I'm going to go get some food and then I'll finish this paper. And what did I do? I Googled running tracks near me and I googled, I don't know, it was pizza or what a best pizza near me or best restaurant near me, fundamentally was a signal of what my behaviour was going to be. So the, you've got the data privacy issue, but if you're trying to drop an intervention into a community or a set of interventions into a community and you want to find out in real time whether or not it's working, that's far more effective than a five-year study with 100 researchers wandering around with clipboards asking questions. If we look at the not-so-distant future, say 10 years, can you paint a picture of your hopes for the care industry? So if you think about scales of time, what we're really doing is operating at different levels of 
quality of response. So the stuff that we did in our first trials was kind of sticky tape and bits of paper and all that sort of stuff. And now it's really slick, beautiful um, cloud-based software that collects huge amounts of data. So in 10 years' time, it'll look like something. On the way there, the pieces of the puzzle, the, the, the kind of steps will be we have a way where the voice of the people in that system is respected and collected and collected in a way that's automatic and scaled. So that's going to be probably some form of digital approach. The AI is augmenting decision-making so that that information is being used to help direct decision-making, not telling you what the decision is, but it says, look, of all the things you could do, history tells us these are good places to start. And there's a feedback loop so that as all of these communities around the world are learning how to do that, that's getting fed straight back into that learning system. So again, you know, the turnaround time now from we learn something in research to something changing at like a policy scale is about 16 to 17 years, if it works. They knew smoking was bad for you in 1945. We still haven't banned it. That's What's that? 70 years. So the idea that just proving something is good or bad leads to a policy change, leads to a solution is nonsense. So I think what we need, what it looks like in 10 years, is we've proven, we've demonstrated that you can build a learning system that pulls all of those elements together. And that's so cool and so exciting and so obvious that it works, that it just happens. You know, So, so in my mind, things like sticky and the process are the Microsoft Word of problem solving. Right, so it'll just be something everybody just uses all the time. It's no big deal, and somewhere centrally, we've got a really good understanding of all the stuff that works around the world. Someone in France has probably solved the problem of screen time in kids under the age of five. Why is the only place that's happening France? Why don't we know about it? Because we haven't got the tools and techniques to capture it and understand it. So that's what 10 years looks like, is as we're solving problems in real time in a distributed way, everybody's learning about it at the same time. And will that hopefully affect policy faster? Or is that not even the point? I don't think it's the point because I think the policy, I think if, if you had a magic wand and you could have any policy change you'd want, the policy change would be invest in finding better solutions. And then once the solution was there, the policy would shift to match it. The, the challenge is not what has to change, it's how we get it to change. So there's always going to be packages that you can use to try and solve a problem. That's not really the question. The question is how do we work out what the best thing is to do at the right time? It's the process. So the gap we've got is there's no policy saying how do we get red-hot process? How do we get the process so that we get the optimal response at the right time for the right group of people. It's such an exciting space that you're working in, Steve. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today and giving us so much fascinating information to reflect on now. Pleasure. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Well, that brings us to the end of this conversation. It's been a fascinating insight into the challenges of making healthy normal, as well as the potential future use of AI to create learning systems that adapt and help augment decision-making processes in response to health interventions in real time. 
We hope we left you with something to think about in the context of the products, services, or experiences you're designing. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Stephen Allender, for joining Peter Farrago in conversation with production and editing by Tom Hogan. The Future Of podcast was brought to you by Craig Walker, a global design and research agency that works with the world's leading organizations. Find out more about the work we do at craigwalker.com.au slash journal. Thank you.